Connors T, how are ye? We're Candlelit Tales and welcome to the Candlelit Tales podcast. I'm Aaron Hegarty and I'm sitting down with my sister. I'm Sarika Hegarty and we founded Candlelit Tales about over four years ago. A little over four years ago where we started telling stories and playing music and combining the two to keep the oral tradition of storytelling alive. And we did that initially on a, well, uh, past the hat policy. If you could pay, if you could donate anything to it, well, we asked you to spare a bit of change. And we're doing the same thing with the podcast as well. If you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com forward slash candletales. Every little bit of helps and uh, helps tell these stories and spread these stories far and wide. And now without further ado, we'll get into our very first story. One of my favourites. It was long ago in Ireland that the Fianna roamed. They were a band of warriors, men and women who lived off the land. And they were so generous it was said that if the leaves of the trees were all gold and the foam of the waves was all silver, the Fianna would give it all away. They defended Ireland from threats inside and out, from the other world and from foreign invaders. There was a door in every house that the Fianna could knock on to ask for assistance, and whoever was there would help them in any way that they could, because they loved their defenders so. The leader of the Fianna was Fionn McCool, a great warrior with beautiful golden hair as lovely as a woman's. His son was named Oshin, the little deer, because Oshin's mother had been under an enchantment, though that's another story that we'll tell another time. Oshin became not only a great warrior of the Fianna, but a great poet, and his reputation spread all around Ireland and beyond its shores. One day, the Fianna were hunting in a place called Tala, near the hill of Allen where Fionn McCool lived, and in the forest there they saw a shaft of sunlight through the trees, and in that sunbeam suddenly there was a lady on a white horse. Now the lady was beautiful. All of the Fianna, all of these great strong men stared at her, with their jaws hanging and their tongues lolling and their eyes popping. She had golden hair down to her waist. She was dressed like a queen and the horse she was riding was no ordinary horse. It seemed to shimmer like moonlight. She looked around at all the great heroes of the Fianna and at the end her gaze came to rest on Ushin, who had fair hair like his father but the liquid brown eyes of a deer. And she told him that her name was Niamh Kinor, Niamh of the Golden Hair, and that she came from a land called Tirnanog, the land of eternal youth, where there was no sickness, no death, no age. She had heard stories of Oshin and the Fianna, and she had fallen in love with Oshin from afar, and she'd come there on that day to ask him to be her husband. Now, Oshin looked around at his companions in the Fianna 
looked at his father, Fionn McCool, and thought, well, this is about the best offer he was ever going to get. So he said yes. He leapt up on the back of the horse behind Niamh Kinor, and she turned the horse's head ready to take him away to the land of eternal youth. But his father, Fionn McCool, put a hand out and stopped him and said, I have a fear in my heart, Ushin, that if you leave this way, I will never see you again. Promise me you'll come back. Within three years, you'll come back to visit me. And Ushin said, of course I will. Of course I'll return to Ireland. I love Ireland. I love you, my father. I love my friends of the Fianna. There's no power that could keep me away. And with that, Niamh Kinor turned the great white horse's head to the west and travelled with Ushin all across Ireland. And when they came to the coast, they kept going. The horse travelled as easily over the water as he had over the land. And Ushin was taken into the other world, to a place called Tirnanog. Now, he lived there happily. Niamh's family welcomed him warmly, the rulers of Tirnanog themselves. And Niamh was a wonderful woman and became his wonderful wife. They had three children together. And sure enough, there was no sickness, no old age, no disease on this wonderful land. It was sunny every day, and the only rain fell softly at night while all were asleep. And there was as much there for the adventurer as there was for the poet. Hunts and feasts and fights. Everything easy and everything light. But from time to time, Ushin would remember his promise to visit his father. And from time to time, he would ask Niamh to take him back. But always, although she would agree, there would be some distraction, some entertainment, something he needed to stay for for just a little while. And sure enough, he'd forget about Ireland again. Now, it seemed to Ushin that he'd been in Tirnanog for a couple of years, maybe three and then he went to Niamh and he insisted. He really put his foot down. He wanted to go back to Ireland. And so Niamh said, All right, I'll lend you my white horse and send you back. But I warn you now, Oisin, son of Fionn Bakul, Ireland is not what you left. You have been here longer than you know. And if you step one foot off the white horse onto the soil of Ireland... You will not come back to me. You will be lost to me forevermore. Now, Oshin didn't quite believe her. He didn't think it had been all that long since he'd been in Ireland. He took the white horse, rode across the waves, came back to the shores of the land he'd once known, and found it changed, utterly changed. A completely different place. The great forests were gone. The great people were gone. And everywhere he went, he asked for news of Fionn and the Fianna, and the people told him those were old stories about a gang of thugs that used to go around robbing people. Oisin was so devastated to hear that the Fianna were almost lost to memory, and where they were remembered, remembered so ill, he rode on to Almoon to his father's house on the hill of Allen, and found there only tumbled stones with grass growing up between them. And then he knew. Niamh Kinor had spoken true. The island he knew was lost to him. 
And so he turned the horse back to Tiernan Oak, to the new life he'd made for himself. But on the way, he saw some men struggling to move a great rock from a field they were ploughing, and, well, they were so much smaller and weaker than the men that Oshin remembered, the great heroes of his age, and he so much bigger and stronger than they, well, he leant down to help, picked up the rock, threw it aside. But as he did so, the girth of the horse's saddle broke, and Oshin tumbled to the ground. The white horse sprang away, and Oshin realised how long he'd been gone. For all the years of all the time he'd been in the land of the ever-young came back down on him now like a ton of bricks. And the people there saw this fine, beautiful warrior tumble off a horse and turn into an old, wizened man before their very eyes. So they brought him to the wisest man in Ireland at that time, a man called St. Patrick, who had brought word of a new religion and a new way to Ireland, and who had overseen its transformation from pagan to Christian, from a land of hunters to a land of monks and nuns. And this old man, Oshin, was brought to him blind and wizened, and Patrick took him in, because it was Patrick's way that there was a welcome for everyone in his community as long as they worked for their keep. Now this idea of working for his keep was galling to Oshin, who remembered a time when he would have been honoured in Ireland as a great warrior, a great poet and the son of a great lord, but Patrick didn't see things that way. Patrick cared nothing for a person's birth cared nothing for their deeds, he cared only for the kind of person they were in front of him, and for their willingness to work for the good of all, and for how well they observed the new religion, and their interest in it. And he quickly found that this old man had no interest in the new faith whatsoever. This wasn't enough for Patrick to kick him out, absolutely not. That would be against his own beliefs to take in everyone who needed a place. But he certainly had no hesitation about putting Oshin to work. He was still immensely strong. Oshin used to carry rocks from place to place, lift heavy things, carry heavy weights. And he always used to check on the cattle to make sure they were okay. Being a man of ancient Ireland, he knew the importance of cattle. And every day he was given a very generous portion of food, an entire skillet of bread all to himself, an entire churn of butter and a quarter of a cow. And he grumbled. He grumbled ferociously that this was not enough food for a warrior. Now Patrick began to grow tired of his grumbles and his complaints. And his exaggerated stories about living on a land of eternal youth, which Patrick was sure was not true at all. One day, Oshin's grumbling reached a pitch, and he snapped at Patrick that he had seen blackbirds bigger than his cows. He had seen ivy leaves bigger than his skillets of bread, and he had seen berries bigger than Patrick's churns of butter, and Patrick snapped back at the old man that he was a liar. 
and Oshin took offence. To be called a liar was the greatest insult he could think of for a man who came from a land where his word was his bond, where he was a poet, which added another layer. A poet could not lie or exaggerate. So he was furious and in silence stalked away. But he was determined to prove his point to Patrick. He went to a servant boy that was a friend of his that used to lead him about and show him the way and he told the servant to take the pups of a hound that had just given birth to tack a cowhide to the wall and to throw each of the pups at the cowhide one by one. And one by one the puppies wriggling fell to the floor until one came along that clung on for grim life with claws and teeth. And Oshin said to the boy, keep that one, drown the rest. He had the servant boy raise the puppy in darkness and give it no taste of meat or of blood. And when the puppy was old enough, after a year, he told the boy to take it out and bring him to a place called Glen Nesmol. He told the boy of a standing stone and when the boy led him to the stone, Oshin dug underneath it till he landed on a chest and in the chest there was a great iron ball, a huge sword and an enormous horn. And he gave the horn to the boy and said, blow on that now. And the boy, he blew as hard as he could. And nothing happened. The boy blew again, harder than before. And made no sound. And Oshin took the horn from him and blew a great blast on that horn that echoed out through all the valley and beyond. And then he told the boy to watch the dog. The boy watched the dog, but he also saw a flock of birds fly overhead that blackened the sky. Huge birds, bigger than he had ever seen in his life. But the dog looked up and did not react. Then came a second flock, even bigger than the last. The boy was awed, but the dog did not move. A third flock of birds flew overhead, bigger still, and then the boy saw the dog was whining and snarling on the edge of its leash, and so Oshin told him to release the hound. The hound ran at the flock of birds. He picked out the biggest one of the biggest flock and he knocked it out of the sky, and there in the valley of Glen Nesmole, up and down and around and around, the hound and the bird, they fought and they clawed. Until finally, the hound brought down the great black bird. And then, maddened by blood, that hound turned and raced towards Oshin and the servant boy. And the servant told him what was happening. And Oshin said, oh no. If I had my full strength, if I had my full sight, I would be able to capture that dog and train him, for he has the makings of a great hound, a hound like the old hounds, a hound like my father's hound, Bran. But I have not my strength, and you have not the skill. So hand me the sword now and point me at him. And as the hound, maddened by the blood of the bird, 
race towards them, snarling and foaming. The boy told Ushin when to strike, and Ushin struck the hound and killed it dead. And then Ushin, the warrior poet of the Fianna, he dragged that black bird back to meet St. Patrick. And he asked Patrick to take a good look at that bird. And he said, well, Patrick, would you say that that blackbird is the size of one of your cows? And Patrick said, it's bigger. And then Oshin said, and in its beak, do you see how it carries a berry and an ivy leaf? Patrick said, yes. And I know what you're going to say. That ivy leaf is bigger than my skillets of bread. That berry is bigger than my churns of butter. You're an honest man, Oshin of the Fianna. And it was then that Patrick knew that every word that Oshin spoke, no matter how incredible, was nothing but the truth. And he and Oshin began to converse in earnest. Oshin told Patrick stories of the Fianna, the great deeds they had done, the great heroes that were among them, and Patrick recorded those stories faithfully and truly, for he was an honest man and valued truth. But as Oshin was an old, old man, he was not long for this world, and as time went on, Patrick began to grow more worried for his friend and determined to convert him to Christianity that he might enjoy the eternal life that Patrick knew was waiting for him and the other believers. Oshin asked if he would see his hound in heaven, if he would see Bran and Skjolon, and Bran Og, that hound he'd killed in Glenness Mole. And Patrick said, no, animals do not have souls. They cannot go to God's house. And Oshin said he did not think that much of a man whose hospitality was so little he would not welcome in the hounds of the heroes. And he asked if his father, Fionn McCool, and all the Fianna would be in heaven, waiting for him there. And Patrick said no. They were pagans. They had not believed. They were men who valued murder and slaughter, who gloried in it, and thought nothing of their immortal souls or the harm they did to others. And Hushin said, well, if they are not there, then where are my father and the Fianna? And Patrick said, well, they're in hell. And Hushin, if you do not convert, it's there you are bound yourself. And he told Hushin about hell, the fiery lake, the torture of demons, what a terrible place it was to spend all eternity, and how he must escape those fires. But Oshin saw it differently. He said to Patrick, I don't think you understand who we're talking about here. Fionn McCool and the Fianna. There's no devil or demon could keep them under bonds. And if it's true what you say, that the God of the White Hands is so mean in his hospitality that only those who follow his rules are allowed in his house then my father and the Fianna are certainly in hell. But I tell you now, if they are there, well, either they have overthrown the devil and are ruling there themselves, 
or they've long since escaped. And it was there that Oshin said that he was bound. He would go to no house where his father was not welcome. And though he thanked Patrick for his kindness, his mind was made up. And Oshin of the Fianna breathed his last and went to find his friends. Ah, I love that. The idea of Oshin closing his eyes and wanting to be with his brothers and sisters in the Fianna no matter where the fuck they are. Right down in hell, burning embers, fire, and fighting with the devils. Do you know what? There's actually, apparently there's a story. I haven't found it yet, but I've heard there is a story about the Fianna's escape from hell. <laughs> I'm sure there is. In which Oscar uh, is their rear guard carrying an unbreakable chain and just wailing on demons. Mm, having the great, greatest crack like. of all time. Like, I love it. I absolutely love it. I love it. it. <laughs> But it's a funny one, and like I guess this chat now is kind of about uh, the story that I heard first, and how that's changed. Because you told me the story umpteen times. It's I, one of our kind of better known stories in Ireland that most school kids hear. Hmm. You know, Oshin goes off to Tirnanog and the White Horse, and that symbolism is so kind of ingrained. I mean, there was that movie Into the West in the eighties with Gabriel Byrne that. <sighs> Really, kind of played on the imagery of the white horse and tear the nose, and oh, yeah, that just brings a tear to my eye. Even just thinking about it, Tato, Tato, Tato. Why did Mammy die on my birthday? No, I can't go there. I can't go there. It's too emotional. It's too emotional. Um, but it is. It's because t- it's turning over and it's going across the waves and it's the horse riding over it and then, like every, it just it churns the heart, you know. And I guess that the the image the imagery is so powerful of going to the other world, but then. Coming back, the first version of the story I heard was Oshin falling off the horse and f- turning into dust and dying. Yeah. Because he was so old. He, he was, of course he turned to dust, he'd be so old. Same. That's the that's the story that I grew up with as well, the, the, that it's one of those great tragic stories. You know, a lot of the hero myths are about going into a magical land and finding some treasure and then coming back. That's the kind of um, the hero with a thousand faces kind of structure of the story, the the monomyth idea. And there are some stories in which the hero doesn't make the return journey. And Oshin falls at the last hurdle and dies. And that was kind of... The tragedy of that was what I knew growing up. Mm. And so to find this addendum to the story, I found that really exciting. I thought that was just so, so interesting. <laughs> And it's fantastic to have so much. And Richard Marsh has a, like a brilliant translation of this, of how in depth he he researched and found it, and so much more detail to the St. Patrick and Oshin conversations and and the tasks he put in Samantha. But what's what's the deal with with Patrick grabbing Oshin and going right? You're to work for me there now. By the way, if you can hear. The grumbling, that is definitely a stomach that is growling because of food being digested. So apologies for that. I apologize <laughs> for my stomach grumbling and also the fact that my neighbour is uh, hoovering at this precise moment. Ah, sure thank, thank you, neighbours, for picking this moment to hoover. We're in the Shafas. Did I mention we're in the Shafas? I don't know. I don't think people know what a Shafas is. Remember we made up that word? It's a shed and an office. 
Yes. Shafas. I mean, I made the word up, so you don't have to explain it to me. <laughs> it's not exactly a you know, soundproof thing, but you know. You know what? It's not soundproofed yet because we yeah. don't have no money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> Patreon. <laughs> um, no, hang on. Let's get let's get back to what we're talking about because I want to know why Patrick grabbed this old fella and put him to work. What's that about? Well, this is kind of this is the thing with Patrick is that he seems to from these stories he seems to have had his his religious centres set up as a as a kind of a refuge for people who didn't have anywhere else to go. Like Ireland was a very clan based country and culture. Still is. If you ever meet an, if you ever put two Irish people in a room together, they will talk until they figure out who they both know in common. Oh yeah. And that's like what we do. And I think that's a real ancestral thing, like because it used to be of absolutely paramount importance to know who you were talking to because your whole world was a web of alliances and feuds and conflicts and, you know, who was on the same side as you and who wasn't was extremely important. And knowing who everybody was and being able to place them in a tribal culture is like just, it's crucial. Mm -hmm. You have to know that before you can have a conversation. Um, And Patrick was somebody who came into this culture and was not of it. And so he's also somebody who was from an early Christian tradition, which was a very egalitarian tradition. The idea there was that your physical form doesn't matter so much. Your material life is not as important as the life that came after you. Now, this is not the religion of later days that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. This is a form of Christianity that doesn't have institutional power. And, like, we all know what happens when you give human beings institutional That's, power. Yeah, regardless of the ideology, it's not a good thing. It's it's a it's a real bad idea, especially if you take away accountability, because humans got a human, and some <laughs> things that humans do are really bad. Yeah. Um, but trust so, St. Patrick, the old Welsh lad, to come over and go, oh, OK, guys, here we go. We're going to do something a little bit radical. All right, how about <clears throat> uh, we believe in the Holy Ghost and the Spirit and the, all of the Mother and the Father, really? I can't believe you've gone Welsh. What are you talking about? It's Paddy, you know, St. Patrick. Do you hear what I'm saying? I do, but stop now. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so. You're getting a bit serious. I just need to lighten it up a bit. I mean, did you? But okay. <laughs> so yeah, Paddy, with, who didn't sound like that. Uh, Pat, might have. St. Patrick, who came over from Wales, or possibly from France. Don't do a French accent. Okay, I won't do a French accent. Uh, yeah, he's... The the way that I kind of conceive of the, of, of his uh, centre was somewhere that outcasts could come, somewhere where people who didn't have another place could come because he's not concerned with hierarchy and he's not concerned with temporal power. He's concerned with, you know, your soul and, and what kind of a person you are and what kind of deeds you do. And so he had it set up that anybody could be there as long as they worked. And actually, I think it's really it's really interesting that even though he continually has these conversations with Oshin, and by the way, this story goes on for a long, long time. Uh, yeah. That was a quite a truncated version because Oshin keeps going on these segues about adventures he had with the Fianna and Patrick keeps bringing him back to like, yes, but your soul. Um, so it goes on for a long time. But the the fact of the matter is that Oshin's not kicked out for not buying into the ideology. Right. This is not a case of like, I'll let you stay here and, you know, be fed and work for your keep as long as you sign up. He's not doing that. 
he's doing exactly what you know Christians are supposed to do which is leading by example mm-hmm. and when somebody comes in from the outside just being like sure talking about the philosophical stuff but letting them make up their own minds okay so Ocean came from you know the the land of the the Fina and they were free and they roamed they were you know hunter hunters and gatherers essentially and they were they were in tune with the land and then when he went away and came back he came to a stony grave full of sick and, and, and covered people and the toning of church bells and it seemed a different different place and mm. all of a sudden you can see a huge shift in the culture mm. and you can see then that he comes in expecting to be welcomed and yet Patrick kind of beats him down a level, does he? I think Patrick kind of does take him down a peg because, yeah, Oisin, you know, the Fianna are used to being hosted and they're used to a tradition of hospitality and also, by the way, an extremely hierarchical culture. Mm. So, like, it's not just that Oisin is expecting hospitality because everyone gets hospitality. (laughs) There's a little bit of that because hospitality was very important, but he's also expecting to be treated as Oshin of the fucking Fianna. Do you know who I am? Right. Like, there's a bit of that going on too because as the son of the leader of the Fianna, he had an incredibly high status. He had an incredibly high reputation. He would have been able to walk in anywhere and just be given whatever he wanted. That was the that was the tradition of the Fianna door. You know, you had your you had an extra door in your house that the Fianna could knock on. And just like they, one day they might be like, oh, here, I killed an extra deer. There, it's yours. And another day they might be like, oh, my shoe fell off. Can I have your shoes? And like whatever it was, you, you just help them out. Because they were the Fianna. And because they were the Fianna and they, they protected Ireland from all the threats from the other world and all the invading armies and just all of the things. But the symbolism of that is interesting because the hierarchy kind of goes, I am better than somebody lower than me. That's essentially what hierarchy is, you know. Yeah, I think there's a different, I don't think it necessarily means better than somebody and you're worse than me. I think it just means like I have a certain status and so I expect a level of treatment Mm. that's not the common treatment, you know, but maybe you're right, actually, that there is it. There is an implied I am better and you if if there's an I am better, there's an implied you are worse. Exactly. Yeah. And like, you know. Anarchy, the anarchists will say we need to get rid of all hierarchy to, to level up society and, and looking at what St. Patrick asked of the Irish people it was to level everything it was mm-hmm. to kind of make everybody equal and so she comes into this however very different it was society and sees everyone as an equal and goes hang on I want to I mean some people are more equal than others <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happened Unfortunately, well, yeah. I mean that's 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 what happens because that's people. what people do yeah. when they're given a little bit of power is they they try and hold on to that power, and then it becomes a structure that gets perpetuated. So whatever the context, I, I you know I I I have heard the anarchist argument about flat hierarchy. Um, that's incredibly difficult to manage, um, and nobody's actually done it yet. No, in proper practice, in in anything other than very small groups. Um, I'm not a believer in a flat hierarchy. I'm a believer in a flexible hierarchy because mm-hmm. I think you do need to have people who make the decisions and who move things along. But you also need to have an opportunity for everybody who's interested in that and who, you know, everybody to have a voice in that and not to have hierarchies fixed on any basis. 
So in terms of, I guess, our romantic view that Yeats painted for us of the the pagan ways, you know, uh, and, and the, this romantic ideology that we have associated with all the Fina times and then the reality of it uh, in comparison to the Christian uh, times as well, we kind of we tend to land pretty heavily, certainly nowadays, on the Christian bad and pagan good. A lot of us do, and I think a lot of people of our generation in Ireland, particularly, um, have this kind of romanticised notion of of paganism. And it's interesting because you know if you look at if you look at the ideology behind Christianity, that's the ideology that gave us this idea of equality and charity and doing right by other people and treating others as you treat themselves. Now that's core to a lot of world religions as well, but like that was not a part of the pagan worldview. Um and I think a lot of this well, I don't think it was. It doesn't seem like it was because all of the laws we have in Ireland are I- extremely um hierarchically based, you know, the old Brehan law system massively depended on your status. Uh so I think when we're looking at modern, you know, modern paganism, a lot of it is trying to take the good stuff out of that and marry it with the good stuff out of our kind of modern, both growing from Christian and growing from Enlightenment thinking mm. and kind of marry it all together into a new thing, which is why it's a new thing, which is why it's neo-paganism. But there's always a danger or there's always a tendency, I think, to this kind of, you know, the world used to be perfect and yeah, it's getting yeah, worse yeah. and worse. Like the the ancient Greeks said they're Arcadia and like the Irish have their like, oh, back in the pagan times when we were all magic and giants and sexy. Like, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a nice dream, but we haven't gotten it all right yet. Yeah. Like there's just revolving cycles of chaos. <laughs> as far as I can see anyway, it just kind of goes through, you know, peaks and troughs. And you tend to find ways to level it out. But there is, yeah, there's no right or wrong in pagan versus Christianity. It just seems to be what you, what you take out and how, how you highlight. I think it's how it's what you take from it. I mean, there's all like the thing about the pagan Christian divide in Ireland as well is like this goes back to a kind of a debate. Uh, you know, you mentioned Yeats there a while ago and certainly in the early 1900s, there was a kind of a there was a huge question over what actually was Ireland's national identity. Absolutely. Because we were still a colony of of the British Empire then. And there was a a lot of kind of wrangling around that because part of the easy kind of divide was that the British were Protestant and the Irish were Catholic. Now, like most simplistic divides, that was an oversimplification (laughs) Uh, and not entirely true. But that became one of the ways of defining Ireland's national identity. And then there were kind of artists like Yeats and Gregory who said, well, we could do that and be Gaelic and and Catholic and, um, you know, rural. Or we could be pagan and mystical and, you know, go into this older tradition that we have. And it's an interesting discussion. Yeah. Uh, as a as a nation, we landed on Catholic. I don't think it was ever more than a minority view back in the 1920s that we'd be like fully pagan. Uh, it was certainly the view of, of William Yeats and Lady Gregory. But like, you know, eh, 
Jim Stevens as well, I guess. But yeah, there were it. there were a number of artists actually working around that, but it it doesn't seem to have been like a popular movement. Whereas when we gained independence and after the civil war in Ireland, we ended up handing the Catholic Church an absolutely enormous amount of institutional power with absolutely no oversight. Mm. And that led to a situation where, like we, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s hearing, like it seemed like every feckin' week there was a new report coming out about child abuse, about rape in the Magdalene laundries, about child sex abuse, about beating up children and tying them to beds, like just the absolute horrific stuff that's still coming out. You know, you have that whole thing about the the, the tune babies that was only a couple of years ago. Like, awful, awful abuses because this group of people were given total power and total deference and no oversight and were put in charge of vulnerable people. And that's, again, people given power, not necessarily the ideology behind it. And I think it's very important to make that distinction. I agree. And I think that that's like, that's one of the things that certainly I've been kind of, I feel like that's been a little bit of a of a sort of a journey for me anyway, getting past the anger at the Catholic Church in mm. Ireland and looking at, OK, but what was the actual philosophy there? What were these people actually saying? And is there something of value in that? And I think, you know, genuinely, I think there is. Like you look at Christian mystics like um, uh, the Little Flower or Meister Eckhart, and they have some profoundly wonderful things to say that don't deserve to be thrown out. John O'Donoghue, again, again, a man who started as a priest, you know, and Adam Carroll, who went back to the old, old poems and old Irish to find the the relationship with the land and on what you're doing. Um, mm. And Moriarty as well kind of resurges that as well. But I guess, without getting too uh, literary about it, I kind of always find that these stories represent a meaning. And the other world that Oshin goes to, the other land, it, it can signify something. And mm. it can be something poetic and it can be something beautiful and it can be very, very far away. And in the end of this story, he, he goes to another world. And at the end of, you know, our life, we go to potentially another world. But this other world can be right next to us and in us and around us and mm. when we only see light waves of a certain frequency and hear sound waves of between a certain bracket you know you're aware that there's so much going on yeah that we are not perceiving Absolutely. there is so much going on that we're not perceiving and I, I, I love that idea as well because it gives such a sense of like everyday magic and kind of imminence and you know certainly in Ireland you know you're walking around and a mist rolls in there Mm. is that sense of like oh I could I'm right next to something else here yeah and and that's where walking up a bloody hill and just feeling the breeze in your face takes you off into another world and that's where you can you can feel even going to an island you're kind of going into a different land a different place Mm. and, and a different energy and I think that's where I always step aside uh, a little kind of cognitive distance I have between the meaning of the story and just the feeling of it mm. and, and where it takes you to and where you can just kind of sense something else or or almost. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's a lovely thing as well to like, we can go really deep into the analysis of these stories. Oh, we don't need to. 
<laughs> can also just listen to them and see where they take us and Absolutely. that's beautiful as well and that's what what your job is to see what <laughs> see what this means for you and where it transports you to and maybe you like these chats maybe you've uh, just listened to the story and want to hear a little bit less chat but let us know um, we're open to uh, more comments and we've thanked a lot number of people who've gotten back to us and requested the story so far we're getting to them we pr- we promise uh, yep. we're, we're doing two a month at the moment because that's just about all we can manage yes <laughs> there's quite a lot and uh, this month is pretty pretty intense now this month is pretty intense Uh we were talking a little bit ago about the the Magdalene laundries and how you know under the church a lot of the reason for anger is how people who were inconvenient be they illegitimate children or women who had sinned were shoved off out of sight of the rest of the population but you know a lot of Irish people will be aware that we're still doing that it has nothing to do with religion now and it has nothing to do with sex but we are still taking people who are inconvenient and shoving them out of sight yeah, the modern day Magdalene Laundry is known also as the direct provision, which, which is, is a black stain on us. I'm sorry, I, it's 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 awful. But uh, Aaron, you particularly have been collaborating with artists in direct provision and a few others to create a show. Yeah, I've been very lucky to be invited by Shiva Quinlan, a brilliant producer and singer herself that teaches music up in Mosny, one of these direct provision centres where people seeking asylum are relocated, moved around, families chopped up and kind of split up. And uh, yeah, I've just been working with three uh, amazing poets writing their own pieces and putting them into uh, retelling one of our stories with the Candlete's musicians, uh, Rue and Oshin, and a brilliant musician, Farah El, who works down there as well. And a theatre practitioner and director has been giving me a hand as a co-director, Raymond Keane. So I've been very, very lucky to have this collaborative process going on. It's It's been great. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been going on and will be going on in St. Patrick's Day Festival. But That is that is going to be upcoming for those of you who are in Dublin uh, over the next couple of weeks or rather over the next week because <laughs> we have a lot going on. Uh, both this land and uh, our own Candle of Tales storytelling show in Wheelands on the 18th. But you're, you'll find more details on that in the post-show notes. If you have any comments or want to contact us about anything, let us know. Till then, keep her lit. This podcast was produced by Oshin Ryan. The story was by Sorica Hegarty and the music was by Oshin Ryan. If you'd like to help support us with these podcasts, you can go to patreon.com forward slash tales. And if you'd like to find out more information about our upcoming live shows and our previous catalogue of podcasts, you can go to candletales.ie. The podcast is on SoundCloud and will be available throughout various devices according to technology. See how that goes. Now... This month is very exciting for us because we are launching Candlelit Theatre, something that we've talked about a number of times. We've done shows in theatres before and now we're making a bigger distinction between Candlelit Tales, our monthly gigs and those shows that we do in the theatre. We're having a very immense uh, project at the moment that we've been collaborating with a number of spoken word artists as well as fantastic musician Farah L and the great co-director Raymond Keane, fabulous actor and performer himself, has been giving us a lot of help with 
Schaefer Quinlan to bring about this land a show in collaboration with St. Patrick's Day Festival it's on the 15th and 16th it's on the National Concert Hall and the Civic Theatre so if you'd like to find out how to get tickets for those very special shows go and see the show notes at the bottom of this it'll be a very exciting weekend as St. Patrick's Day Festival will be and we're also as part of the festival going to be having our own Saints and Sinners show on the main stage in Whelan's. Now this is a chance to see the homegrown brilliant shows that we always bring to our live audiences in our own unique way, celebrating paganism and Christianity in their own unique ways and this show will be on in Whelan's the main stage so you can get tickets from their website whelan's.com and until we have more information for you lads keep her lit you.